This is lesson 20, our final lesson. And as we get started, uh, I, I will read all of our review points because being our final lesson, it will just help to reinforce some of the things we've learned. And um, tonight we think specifically about how to pass these things on to others. And so having them fresh on our mind will be beneficial to us as uh, we get into our study. So we learned, first of all, that as a human, we're made by God. We have a creator, and that's where we got into issues of being created in his image. Therefore, we have value and worth. Um, We reflect him in the fact that uh, he made us, and yet we're also broken by sin. So the fall has impacted all of us, and we bear evidence of the fall. At the same time, we are loved by God in a very specific way. He sent his son to die for our sins. And so God showed his love. He demonstrated his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, And then if we trust in the Lord Jesus as Savior, we are then in Christ. And we've used that phrase, in Christ, as sort of the foundation point for our identity, united with Christ in every way. And uh, here are just a few of the ways we've discussed We are loved eternally, infinitely, and perfectly. We are justified. Jesus takes my sin and I receive God's righteousness. I am adopted, a child of God with all the rights and privileges of his son. I am born again. God has imparted his life to me. I am favored. I stand completely in God's grace. I am reconciled at peace with God. I am redeemed purchased out of slavery to sin to serve Christ. I am a member of Christ's body with grace to do my part for his glory. I'm a citizen of his kingdom, living as an ambassador in a foreign land. I'm a light bearer. God's glory is in my heart by God's spirit, and it shines as a light. I am changing into his image. God's spirit uses his word to grow me. I am not defined primarily by my past failures or achievements, my desires, my feelings, or my body, and I find true purpose for myself, my circumstances, my roles, and relationships. That was last week, had to do with what Christ is doing in me and what Christ is doing through me, uh, first to make me more like Jesus, and then to show the world that Jesus is the Savior that God sent. So this week, you see at the top of your notes there, or or at least under the review section, In Christ, we are equipped to help others with identity problems. Now, I switched to the plural pronoun we because this really impacts the whole body of Christ. And that's a neat aspect of our identity now. Uh, Not only are we in Christ, but when we're in Christ, we're with everyone else who's in Christ. So we're never alone. I mean, obviously, we're with Christ when we're in Christ. Um, but we're with everyone else who's in Christ. That refers to the church. And so we as a people in Christ are equipped to help others with identity problems. Uh, And so we're going to think through uh, the ways that we do this, and we're going to start by trying to dissect what the problem is. What, What are the main identity issues in our culture today? And so, number one, we're going to try to recognize the larger cultural problem. I read a book on Monday that was super helpful. I just will uh, pass along the title to you. It's called Strange New World. It's by Carl R. Truman. 
uh, just came out in 2022. Um, and uh, what he does is he tracks kind of the historical threads that led to where we are today and uh, some of the issues in our culture and how they relate to identity politics. Um, and so, yeah, sexual revolution, all of that. So we'll track along a little bit with him tonight. And uh, eventually I'll get this on our library shelf so you can uh, check it out sometime if you'd like to. So recognizing the larger cultural problem, before we get to his take on things, it's important to uh, get a biblical perspective. So let's go to Romans chapter 1, where, I love this, God tells us through the Apostle Paul exactly how this is going to unfold. How will societies fall apart when it comes to identity? And so in Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read a lengthy section, and so I apologize for that, but it is all pertinent to what we're talking about. So this is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, okay? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God's shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened." Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting." being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Gulp. So that is a fairly dark portrayal of what happens when we, well, this is what we're going to explain. Suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It all begins there back in verses 18, 19, and 20. And then that progression, uh, denial of God, leads to worship of the creature rather than worship of the creator. Okay, so that's the biblical prediction. Now, you can leave your Bible open here because we'll reference a few things here and there as we sort of take a cultural look at this now, okay? 
So let's think about the current state. And again, this is pointed out in Carl Truman's book. Uh, The term he uses for the current state of our culture is called expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. If you're looking for a way to define this, the, the shortest one is probably the phrase, you do you, right? Expressive individualism. Whoever you think you are, express yourself. Do that, okay? You do you. And this is some conglomeration of like postmodernism where there is no truth and whatever else you want to call it where I define my own truth. Um, And so kind of the concept is, hey, whatever you think you are, whatever you think is good for you, you do that, okay? Each person, uh, according to expressive individual, has a core of unique feeling and intuition that should unfold or be expressed if their individuality is to be realized, There's also a culture of authenticity that comes with that, and that's defined as each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity. And it's important to live out one's own humanity instead of surrendering to conformity with a model imposed upon us from outside by society or the previous generation. So if you kind of just go along with the status quo, then you're labeled as not being authentic, Because it's not only that a person is allowed to express themselves, you do you, but you actually have to express yourself to have definition. And if you just go along with what you're taught from your parents or, you know, what your religion tells you, for instance, then you don't have an identity, right? And so this is sort of the the, uh, current state of things. Um, it's also connected, connected to what uh, he defines as a sexual revolution, which is different than just pushing sexual norms. It's actually the repudiation of any sexual code at all. So again, it's very related to this expressive individualism. We will not be told what's right or wrong. We'll just do what we want to do. That's how we express ourselves, define ourselves. Um, so if the inner identity is defined by sexual devi- desire, he or she must be allowed to act out on that desire in order to be an authentic person, right? So we can't tell somebody, no, you can't do that. And uh, then a third concept that's part of our culture is what's called the social imaginary. And that's this just concept that nobody really defines culture. It's all what we imagine it to be. And so it's not legislation, it's not even individual leaders that make culture, it's more so the arts, TV shows and movies. What everyone imagines our culture to be is what ends up being your culture. It's a really interesting concept and a little bit confusing at first. Um, But the point is, the solution to the problem ends up being different than we would first expect. Okay, and so we'll get to that at the end. All right. So let's think through the progression here, all right? It started, according to Carl Truman, started uh, in the Romantic era. So we're talking, uh, you know, centuries ago at this point, when uh, what he calls the psychologization, I'm emphasizing the wrong syllable there, psychologization, there we go, of our self. (laughs) Uh, And so that's where the inner person uh, trumps what's outside of me, right? So he gives an excellent example that I'll read to you here. Uh, The sentence, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, would have been nonsense to our grandparents. 
had it been uttered by a patient to a doctor in the mid-20th century, the doctor almost certainly would have responded that the patient had a psychiatric problem and that his mind needed to be treated so as to bring it, its feelings into line with his physical body. Today, the doctor is more likely to respond that the problem is with the patient's body, and the body needs to be brought into alignment with the person's thinking and feeling. Okay, so this is the sort of the shift that he's tracking, that uh, at one point we had structures outside of ourselves that defined us, right? I was born in a male body, so I'm a man. Right? But now he's saying there's a shift. What I think and feel is now primary. So the conclusion is I am my thoughts and feelings. Uh, this has become most important to us. And he talks about that being the first major shift. Inner feelings are the decisive authority as to my identity. Uh, again, this is culture's view of things, not our view of things. All right, so that's the first progression. The next step comes not long after that. And you may have heard of philosophers like Marx and Nietzsche. Uh, Here, we, because our thoughts and feelings define ourselves, now I have the right to define myself, right? So if I'm sort of choosing my thoughts and feelings, then I define myself, So no one outside of me can tell me what's right or wrong. No one outside of me can tell me what I should or should not do. Uh, And so this leads to the rejection of moral structures. Uh, In fact, moral codes become oppressive. And this is where you first start seeing uh, oppression terminology, or I'm a victim. And so if somebody outside of me says something different than the way I identify myself, suddenly I'm oppressed. Right? Somebody tells me, I can't do that. I'm not allowed to do that. That's labeled as oppression. That goes all the way back to Marx. And so what's required here is that we have to sort of find ourselves through artistic expression, self-creation uh, that defies you know, the herd morality or what everyone else is doing. I've got to find myself. And again, you've got phrases like follow your heart, you know, figure out who you are and determine uh, determine who you are. That leads to another thing. If my thoughts and feelings are primary and I define myself, that leads to sexual desires actually being our primary definition because what we began to realize as a culture is that our sexual feelings are our, often our strongest feelings. And so as a culture, that began to be our primary definition. And so what you desired sexually was primarily who you are. And this was affirmed by Freud and other philosophers of his time. This is the primary category for understanding our identity. It came from the sense that, uh, that sex is foundational to human happiness, right? You can't be happy without it. And happiness was considered in our culture just a foundational right. So, right, we can all pursue happiness. And so if we can all pursue happiness, then we have to be able to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And so everyone should, of course, be able to live out their sexual desires if they're going to be able to be happy. All right, so you begin to have all these different shifts. So now our sexuality becomes uh, primary in the way we define ourselves. I am primary than my sexual desires. Finally, this leads to the politization uh, of the sexual psyche. 
So I am my thoughts and feelings. My th- primary thoughts and feelings are sexual. I define myself. Now, if that's how I'm defined, then that becomes political because what politics is, is the identification of who's a real citizen worthy of a place in society. And so if I identify myself as, you know, again, being hypothetical here, a person who's attracted to same sex, right? If my culture says, no, that's not allowed, politically, I've been denied a place in society. And so now that's where, again, that terminology of oppression comes into play. And wait a second, it's my right. It's my right to have a place in society. It's my right to be able to express who I am. You can't deny that of me, right? And so that's where a lot of these uh, identity debates come in. So now uh, my sexual psyche that I define myself, my thoughts and feelings, and primarily my sexual desires are who I am. I must be affirmed as a legitimate member of society. And it's more than just being allowed to do what I want to do. I ha- my identity has to be part of society. So think of it as you know, social classes or ethnic groups and so on and so forth, that within the political group, there has to be a place for me and my identity, which is interesting because at the same time that we're trying to become very specific, that I'm only me and I define myself, we're also trying to have community, right? And so there's this, there's this problem uh, there because I want to be myself. I want to define myself, but at the same time, I want to fit and be a part of something. Now, that's, we're going to come back to that in the biblical solution in the second half of this. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it creates an interesting problem that has not yet been resolved. Part of the, the issues that are, are falling apart in our culture. Uh, so a few more comments with this. Um, any sexual codes become political oppression. Sexual codes must be shattered for human beings to be free, meaning we can't tell anybody, no, you can't do that. Uh, a specific context becomes the only rule for morality. So as long as everyone involved in that act consented to it, then it must have been okay. There's no external morality. And you know where this is headed, this is just, just awful, and you hate to think about these things, but where this is headed... Uh, is, for instance, uh, pedophilia, right? Adults who are attracted to children. Uh, and so this would be interesting to see how that unfolds in our culture. Thankfully, that is still culturally taboo. I'm, I'm glad for that because obviously it's evil and it's wrong. Um, but according to our culture's standard, that will at some point have to be questioned, right? If somebody says, well, that's who I am. I'm attracted to children, um, there's going to be some rub there in our culture, and it, it will be interesting to see how that unfolds. So again, this worldview falls apart fairly easily, uh, which is good news for us as Christians as we interact with people. But again, we're just kind of dissecting what's going on in our culture here. Um, another comment. Anything seen to have a negative effect on someone's psychological identity can potentially come to be seen as harmful, even a weapon. That's why, like in Canada... Uh, there has been passed now a non, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A non, uh, conversion's not quite the right word. Um, no, it is conversion, conversion therapy. Yeah, it is conversion therapy. It's an, a non-conversion therapy law. So if somebody identifies and says, I'm a woman in a man's body, 
uh, they cannot be counseled uh, to stay as a man in a man's body, right? So that's considered, their, their true identity is that they're a woman, and so it's considered conversion therapy to counsel them that they're actually really a man, right? So again, you see how it's kind of been flipped. What I think and feel defines who I am as opposed to external structures like my body or God or the world he's created, okay? Um, what also happens with this is that freedom of religion and speech take a back seat to freedom of self-expression, right? So a religion can't say that this moral code is where we draw the line because that might get in the way of someone's self-expression. Self-expression trumps freedom of speech and religion. And again, we'll see how some of these things unfold. All right. Any questions on the first half of sort of an analyzation of what's been going on in our culture and sort of how it's unfolded? If you'd like to read more about that, that was an extremely brief summary of a 190-page book, uh, which this, fun fact, is a summary of his longer 300-some page book. So anyway, uh, yeah, have fun with that if you want, so... All right, so there's sort of the issue. Now, the question I really want to wrestle with in the last 15 minutes here quickly is, what do we do about this, right? I don't mean to be depressing. Uh, You know, it's like, oh, man, it's just all going downhill. The culture's going to explode and die. And like, well, yes, someday it will. Okay, so don't set your hope in America or in any other nation for that matter, right? God reigns over all. And I was reading Revelation this morning, and uh, he's going to set all things right, and he will reign forever, and we will sing his praises, and it's going to be glorious. So set your hope there. I'm also not saying we just give up on the current state of things, okay? God has us here for a reason. We talked about that last week. Um, So briefly look at the chart that you have there in your notes. No blanks here because I wanted you to be able to just track along with this. As we saw in Romans chapter 1, the heart of the issue is an identity issue, and it begins with who we worship, right? So we completely get off in identity as soon as I begin to worship myself. I've misidentified myself, right? And this is what Romans 1 talks about. I've suppressed the truth. I've denied God's existence. And then most clearly, verse 25, I've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. So there's our foundational issue. We're worshiping ourselves, And so then I'm God of my little universe. I can define myself how I want. Nobody can tell me what's right or wrong. I just do whatever I feel like. And my goal as God of my universe is to make myself happy, to experience pleasure, to avoid pain. Who cares what happens to anybody else? You know, I'm God of my world. We worship ourselves. That's the foundational problem. The solution is, of course, worship of God. That we function as he made us, as his creatures, and we worship him, and we live in the identity that he's given to us. So notice how the solutions to these problems differ. So in the the left column, you have a problem, for instance. Why do I feel shame over my actions and desires? Well, if if, if I try to solve that with self-worship, then the conclusion is this. Well, I'm right, so the moral codes of God or my culture, those must be wrong. They're shaming me, and that's not right of them. But if we we worship God, we realize, oh, I have a creator who's given me a conscience, and I feel shame because the things I'm doing are wrong, and I need to change. And there's a solution from God to help me do that. 
Okay, so there's, again, two ways of looking at that. Well, how do I process my feelings and desires? So, again, it's not that we don't have feelings and desires. We do. They're just not the primary way we identify ourselves. So if I'm worshiping myself, I will think to myself, well, my feelings and desires are right. So they are the foundational definition of my identity. But when I'm worshiping God, I can bring him my feelings and emotions for help to grow and to change, to draw them into alignment with what he has said is right. And so you can kind of go down this chart and see how if worship of self is going on, we will think this way. And if worship of God is going on, we'll think this way. And it's really at the foundation of all of this. Now, that's really, really good news, okay? Because that means there's hope. Um, Who of us in the room for our entire lives since the day we were born have been a worshiper of God? Anybody. I'm putting my hand down. None of us. None of us. That's why I say there's hope. Okay? God is in the business of restoring his creatures to worshiping him. It's what he's about. It's what he's doing. It's what he did in my life. It's what he's done in your life if you've trusted in Christ as Savior. He's freed you. I mean, this is the whole identity thing we've been talking about. He's freed you from bondage to worship of yourself, to return to him. Put him back on the throne and find that, oh, wow, big surprise. That's where joy is found. That's where I find and fit and meet my desires and my identity. Okay, so there's kind of the foundational solution. People need to become worshipers of God as opposed to worshipers of self. So how do we help with that? All right, number one, or excuse me, number two. Engage in the larger cultural solution, which is the church. So this is a huge scale. We're talking culture here, right? So think about yourself for a moment. One person in the midst of a massive culture, right? I don't even know the population of the U.S., right? It's big. So how do you change the culture in the U.S. or even in the world? Well, that's fairly daunting. God's actually told us the way that he's doing it in the Bible, right? Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So God has a plan for drawing sinners to repentance. And it's a universal, worldwide, global plan. And it's happening right now. And people all over the world are being converted to faith in Christ and are being baptized into the body of Christ and The church is growing. Jesus promised it. It's happening. That's cool. So individually, you participate in counter-cultural life by engaging in the church. And so if you're born again, you're a member of the universal church. But the way you participate in the church is in a local church. You get involved. You do things. You go. You pray. You gather on a Wednesday night. I can't tell you how thankful I am that you're here tonight. I was thinking about this lesson and the power of God's people gathered in prayer. You ever paused to just listen to the sound in the room as we pray together? I mean, this is just 50 people here, right? Think of that. All over the world, God's people are praying to the God of the universe who reigns over all things. And he is powerful to do whatever he pleases. And he hears our prayers, all of them at the same time, right? Church is exciting. (laughs) 
And so to gather and pray and talk with him and know that he hears and that he's working and that God through the church can counteract everything that's going on in culture. And so when it feels individually overwhelming, remember the church. Christ is building his church and you're in, you're in it. And so engage in your church and what God can do. Now, this involves a few things. I'm going to move quickly here. First of all, we have to understand our complicity. Okay, I confess that's his word, not mine. Okay, so complicity means we are, uh, we're sinners too, is basically what it means. This is what we talked about, right? Even as Christians, we fall back into worship of self. Here's some examples of where this can even show up in the church, in the way we do church. When we go to church to feel better, right? Who is that about? That's about me. That's worship of self. When I leave church and all I'm thinking about is whether they noticed that I was there, if anybody said anything nice to me, or if I feel better, that's worship of self, right? So it's the same, same thing, same problem in our culture. We have to recognize that our hearts are doing the same thing, worship of self. Now, at the, at the surface, it appears differently, Right? So I might still fit within Christian moral codes, but if my heart is still worshiping self, I got the same problem. And so we have to have a degree of humility and understanding that we're sinners too. What if our prayer requests focus mainly on relief from our oppression or misery uh, or escaping pain? Now again, it's not wrong to pray for those things, but that's primarily focused on me rather than on worship of God and what he's doing in the world. Um, We think of divine blessing in terms of personal happiness as opposed to God's name being glorified, right? So again, worship of self creeps into our thinking too. And the reason I point that out is because our culture has affected even the way we do Christianity, and that really ought to humble us, really ought to humble us. There's no place for the Pharisee in the temple who says, Oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like those sinners. So when we address a culture that's facing identity issues, we don't walk into the room saying, Oh, thank you, Lord, that I don't have same-sex attraction and that I don't do that. Because the basic problem is worship of self. And I do have that problem. right? And so we're the tax collector in the corner saying, Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This helps us to move toward people with compassion. Not to say that what they're doing is okay, but that I'm a fellow sinner and there's a God who provides redemption. Let's go to him together. Right? So this is the call uh, we bring to people. We develop faithfulness over feelings. So learning to be loyal to a group of believers even when my feelings are off. Right? Again, this is rooting ourselves in worship of God as opposed to worship of self. If feelings and desires are everything, then I'll choose my church. I'll choose whether I go. I'll do all those things based on how I feel. Well, that church made me feel really good, so I think I'll go back. Yeah, those people, I was really encouraged today. And again, I hope you're encouraged when you come to church, so don't misunderstand me. That's not the primary thing, is it? It's about God. It's about worshiping Him. That's why we're here. And so faithfulness over feelings, to be faithful to God even when my feelings are off because they're not primarily who I am. I bring them to God, I engage my emotions, and He helps me with them. 
Learn from the early church. I mean, I love this. As our culture uh, sort of, you know, to, in our view, sort of crumbles and falls apart, we're actually going back to sort of the way it was when Christianity first came on the scene. Read the New Testament. Uh, and the way that the church and, and Christ was just kind of ostracized. And I mean, there's a lot we can glean from the New Testament and how we respond to these things. And again, I, I hope that persecution in our country is far, far away. I hope. Um, but it may not be, right? And so there's a lot we can learn from the early church. And then uh, promoting biblical church values. So expository preaching, preaching the whole counsel of God. What does the word say? This is how God is going to work in his church. Um, God forbid that I or someone else get up there and just sort of spout, you know, my latest, greatest ideas, right? What is that? That's worship of self. We need God. We need him. And so his word is primary. God-centered worship. So that when we gather for worship, it's not about my tastes, it's not about my preferences, it's not about the songs I like, it's not about feeling better. It's about actually me being formed by God, changed. That as I see what He's like, He changes me. The worship service isn't influenced by me at all, it influences me instead. This means biblical theology is important, an understanding of what the Word teaches. The church in 1 Timothy 3.15 is called the pillar and ground of truth. Gospel fluency, a clear understanding of what the gospel is, how a person is born again, and being able to speak that gospel in our lives to our children, to our loved ones, to our neighbors. And then a loving community. So I talked about the strange dichotomy of expressive individualism, that I'm unique and I should be able to express myself and you can't stop me, but at the same time wanting to fit, <laughs> wanting to fit with a group of people. And so that's where it's become political. The church is really the solution where we say at the, at the same time you can find identity and it's not you defining your identity, it's God who made you and who loves you and gives you a new identity in Christ. And at the same time, you find community. You find a people who will love you and will help you. And so the loving community of the church is, crazy as it sounds, exactly what people are longing for. God built their hearts that way. All right, so that's the church. Now, in our last three minutes, hope is your last one and... Uh, as a church, we're displaying, we ought to be displaying hope. There really is hope. I won't go any further on that. Love your neighbors toward the truth. So not only participating in your church and affirming and supporting those things, but how do you personally love your neighbors toward the truth? Now, theoretically, your Bible's still open to the book of Romans. Because there in chapter 1, we get through verses... 29 through 32, which is one of the longest lists in Scripture of sins. And so you sort of read those things, and you sort of pick up kind of the Pharisees' perspective. You're like, oh, thank you, Lord, that I don't think I was mentioned there. <laughs> yeah, whew, escaped that list. Well, then you get to chapter 2, and he says, to the reader who are believers. 
Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. What? Paul, you're kind of pointing at me here. I mean, I wasn't in that list you just mentioned. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. Oh, yeah. So he gives this list of all this wickedness, and it's like he knows what the reader is doing. We've started judging all the people listed in that list. And so then he points the finger at the reader and says, Ha, you're inexcusable, you who judge. Oh, yeah. Sorry, Paul, I was judging. You're right. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. We know that the judgment is of God is according to the truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Did you catch that? So we busy ourselves judging one another when God's saying, I'm going to take care of the judging. I will judge everyone according to their acts. Right now, it's my kindness, my goodness leading you to repentance. So as soon as we start pointing the finger, you're going to be judged for that. Now, it's true. But there's also a finger pointing back at me saying, I'm going to be judged even for just judging them, right? And so right now we're calling people to repentance. We don't sit on the judge's seat. We're helpers. It doesn't mean we can't say that something is sin. Of course we can. God says that things are sin. And so we can call sin, sin. But we do it with compassion. Because if, if, if I'm calling down judgment on people, then I deserve it as well. So we got to remember the biblical perspective. I am not judge. God showed me kindness, and his kindness through me can lead them to repentance. All right, let me give you the rest of the blanks so you can get those down if you'd like to, because we're out of time. We, we need to personally see others for their true identity. We, as Christians, do a lot of personal disrespecting. If we really believe people were made in God's image, then of all people, we ought to be respectful and kind to others. If we really believe that Jesus died for the world, then we ought to tell them about his love. We ought to have compassion, right? We understand that the problem is worship of self. It's a problem that I have too. We are all prone to this expressive individualism, and it may not manifest itself in my life the same way, but I'm a sinner too in need of God's help. We engage in loving conversation. 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, strongly encourage you to study that in your own time talks about gentleness and patience as we converse with people. We use the word, Hebrews 4.12, it's powerful to cut to the heart. And we use the gospel, Romans 1.16 and 17. It's the power of God unto salvation. So friends, there is so much hope to go to somebody who thinks they are their sexual desires and be able to tell them, oh, dear friend, you are so much more than that. You have a creator who loves you. And you're far more than your desires. And the shame you feel over those desires is not the oppression of your culture. 
It's that it's against the moral code that God has written. And He is ready to free you from that and to give you life and a new identity and a home and a family. There's so much hope we have to offer people. And so we praise God for that. Sorry I kept you long tonight. Uh, Okay, wow. I'm really going overboard now. All right, two more books. This one's called Love Into Light. Uh, Of the three I'm going to mention tonight, this one's probably uh, my favorite. Um, The Gospel, the Homosexual, and the Church talks about just loving people towards the truth and what that looks like. This one's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's a story of Rosaria Butterfield and how she came to faith in Christ out of, uh, she was a feminist, um, lesbian, tenured professor at Syracuse University, and God used the kindness of a local pastor uh, to sort of soften her heart and lead her to faith in Christ. So really interesting story. But those are all available in our library. Okay, I'm sorry, you're dismissed.